Blog Talk Radio. can perhaps be best described as a prolific all-rounder, an actor and musical theater performer. She's traveled the world for her work and pleasure. Our focus today, though, is on Megan's literary side, author of a string of young adult novels, including The Girl of Glass and The Tethering. Megan joins us today. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, um, first time we met... um, this is memorable to me because it was just so funny. Um, we first met in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because you had apparently participated in a Facebook event. It was one of these author takeover events. You want a copy of my first book, Parasite Girls. And then I found out you were just down the road from me. So I thought, all right, I'll just bring it to her. So I got to meet you and your husband, Christopher. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. Met you outside the theater where I was performing. It was very cool it it can feel very lonely when you're an author like there aren't a lot of you around so it's nice when you get to meet somebody in person yeah and of course many of us don't want to be known but we end up having to be (laughs) (laughs) it's true eventually the the anonymity sort of washes away and you have to admit who you are yeah, well, the thing, too, was it's like I'd done theater before, so it was easy enough for me to do. But, uh, no, it was just um, when we – I had never done any of those takeover events, and I had, they don't – they seemed to have had a very quick day, and then they were gone again. But uh, the fact that you were right up the road, I just thought, oh, man, this is this is going to be weird. But I thought um, – best thing to do is, okay, let's promote ourselves by actually bringing something to people and proving that we really can do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was, it was very cool. And it's, it is kind of sad how fast the uh, author Facebook takeovers sort of petered out and died. It was, it was a very cool phase, but it was briefly lived. Yeah. And it was fun. It was, it was kind of fun to just get people on and just share that way. It was one of the great ways to really promote our work and uh, who knows, maybe that'll come back with the way social media changes and that sort of thing. It's, you know, that changes all the time. Yeah. It's, it's a very evolving platform. I'm trying to learn TikTok right now. Like what, how, how is this anything to do with my books? But you know, it's, it's what the business demands right now. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking at it and shaking my head and going, "What am I? How long do I have? And and what am I supposed to do?" And <laughs> yeah, I think I have a six-year-old nephew, so I'm probably gonna have him uh, teach me how to make it work. Okay, that'll do it. Well, listen, we have to begin <laughs> with this, Megan. Um, based on your output over the years, it seems almost effortless the novels you've put out and. Normally, I wait till a little later in the show to ask about this, but I really want to begin at the start with you. Tell us about Megan and where your writing, where all of you began, because there's so much of you here. Um, well, I theater and storytelling sort of 
go hand in hand. So because mm-hmm. I am my day job, which is a weird thing to say about theater, but because my day job is on stage, I really spend all of my time storytelling. That's, that's really what I do with everything. Um, and I had sort of dabbled a little in writing in um, high school because I took a children's literature class, weird story. I ended up at community college instead of actually going to high school. So I was in this children's literature class in what I call high school. And Mm -hmm. we had this final project to create a children's book. Well, I was doing King Lear at the time and I was Cordelia. So I had a lot of time backstage both before and after I died. So I sort of took the project way too seriously and wrote, basically a middle grade novel of about 35,000 words as this final project was not necessary okay. at all for the class. So I wrote that and I enjoyed it. But then, you know, I went to big kid college and got my life devoured by musical theater. And so it wasn't until I would say almost a decade later that I was doing a production. I was super miserable. I was not having fun on stage. I wasn't having a particularly great time with the cast. And I just needed something that I could be in control of and enjoy in my artistic life. And so I turned back to writing and I wrote the project that became the first book in the tethering series. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really interested in the beginning of that because um, I'm someone, it's funny. I did some of the same things. I, I created, I had a creative writing class in high school and one of the projects was to create a children's book. And I, I probably still have it somewhere. But um, And it was one of those things. And it's like we were very much allowed in those days to create and write whatever we wanted to write. And we were supposed to write a short story. And I wrote an incredibly violent, murderous short story, which <laughs> I look back on now and think was just absolutely just atrocious, even for a 15-year-old to write. And... And my teacher loved it. I don't know why, but she did. And today, if I wrote, if 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 like I wrote that in high school today, I would be in the guidance counselor's office, and the police would probably be there. <laughs> those things have changed a bit. My my story I wrote for class was was not a uh, violent, so I didn't have those problems. But I just love the thought of like. You've got Shakespeare, you've got King Lear as an influence for that. That's pretty that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Cordelia is not on stage very long and it is a very, very lengthy show. I had a lot of time in yep. the dressing room. Yeah, and, and isn't it interesting? It's like when you have the time to just you have that you have so much downtime and then all of a sudden you get a a, a spark to do something else and I've had that at various periods through my career. It's like you have these long periods of really not doing anything, and it's like you just have to not be idle. Um, how quickly did it come during the show as you were writing the tethering? I'd say, well, I made some really big mistakes. So I didn't okay. start off with the intention of necessarily like, well, performing isn't making me happy. I'm going to be an author now. It just sort of was like trying to tell myself a story to keep, me sane so I didn't necessarily work on it in chronological order and I hand wrote it so that creates a huge amount of a huge amount of problems so 
it probably took me about three months to write the length of the first draft. It took mm -hmm. me about six months to put it into an order that would make sense to anyone outside of my brain. And then probably <laughs> about another nine months to a year after that to edit it into a proper manuscript that could be submitted for publication. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things you learn, isn't it? Uh, for me, it was sort of the same way. It was, I would try in my high school years and even in my college years to try to write a book or try to write a story. And I would get off to a blazing start of about three or four pages. And then it would just die. And I did not have the cognitive ability, I guess, to sort of map it out, plan it out. And I completely forgot everything in my English classes in high school about this. <laughs> so um, it, it's a learning process, though, isn't it? it? It is. And it's gotten to a point now where, generally speaking, there are some times where if there's a scene that I'm, like, super excited about and I know for sure how I want it to happen, I mm -hmm. will jump ahead to that scene and create a draft of it just so I can – put it out of my mind and move on with the rest of the story. But mm -hmm. I've gotten to the point where I'm really very solid on writing linearly and checking plot holes as I go. So when I get to the end of a first draft, I already have a fairly solid product in hand, which really speeds the process up. That's interesting because that's, that's kind of what I finally learned to do uh, some years ago was – I will do this thing where I won't write anything for months. If I get an idea, because I'm always thinking about or editing or working on the things I've already written, but if I have a new idea, it's one of those things where I'll just let it work in my mind and just let it sort of evolve in my head. And uh, it's taken anywhere from a few months to a couple of years before I'll actually write it. Because it's like, does this make sense do these characters make sense? Is there, am I going to be able to get from point to point and fill up those holes? And especially, have I already written this before? That kind of thing. And once I, it starts to really stick, then it's like suddenly the character sketches come and I'll do a timeline. I'll do like a, like a, like a plot line of, of what each chapter is going to be in. And then of course I'm zigzagging all over the place, but it's, um, and that's the same thing for me. It's like, by the time the first draft is done, it's in pretty decent shape. And then I had, then I can go back and, and rip it to shreds again. Yeah. Which is, you know, the painful and fun part. Maybe, maybe we can call it fun. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I definitely want to ask about the tethering a little bit later on here, but uh, um, we've gotten a little bit of an idea of you. Um, in terms of theater, were, were your family involved in theater because I don't, or were your family involved in writing or anything creative like that? Because quite often it seems that that, that goes hand in hand. Um, really not to the extent that my life has become eaten by theater and writing. Um, mm. My mother was in community theater. So when I did community theater when I was little, we never actually performed together, but she was familiar with the local theater and she would volunteer for costumes or my father would help make costumes. My sister did a lot of community theater with me. It sort of, we diverged when it became like the time of, well, what are you going to do in college? She went into visual arts, like um, she does ceramics, she's a professor. 
and mm-hmm. I went into performing arts. Um, my sister has also dabbled in writing. Um, she writes articles, obviously, for her profession, but I'm the only one who really dived in whole hog, but I did very much grow up in a family where there was no discouragement from going into the arts. There was no, oh, that's not what you should spend your time on. Oh, you know, no, you can't be in three plays at the same time. Why are you writing an entire book for class when you could just, you know, make a picture book like everyone else? There was never any discouragement involved. That's cool. And what kind of reading did you indulge in growing up? Because that too always has a hand in it. I, I started reading longer books at a very young age. I was a super advanced reader. I went to this weird experimental elementary school. I don't know. It was where they sent all the country kids, um, where they believed in whole language theory. So basically they didn't care about spelling. It was all about reading which kind of sucks now because I really still can't spell, but I'm an excellent (laughs) reader. It's super weird. Like I had spelling tests where I got a hundred percent and I didn't get a single reading Shakespeare when I was in third grade because I could. So I skipped Mm -hmm. over a lot of the childhood books. I never did that phase. So I was reading a lot of like, I think I read all of Shakespeare when I was, before like sixth grade, because I could. I don't know why I decided that would be a fun summer project. But Madeline Lingell, I was obsessed with her. I was obsessed with the Dragon Riders of Pern. Um, I loved Narnia. I, I, my father was a volunteer at the local library. So I ended up getting ditched in the library quite a bit. There was like a weird little back room where I hung out a lot. So Mm -hmm. I just sort of took whatever I wanted off the shelves and then gave it back to the library and when it was time for me to go. Well, that's cool. And how about the the writing? Um, one of the things, because I remember my parents used to take me, I grew up in Vermont, and the University of Vermont every summer used to do Shakespeare. And they would do two plays. They would always do a comedy and a tragedy. And they would sort of alternate the two plays throughout the summer. And when I was little, we used to go at, you know, at least once every summer for a number of years. So I got to see King Lear, didn't understand it as I was far too young, but um, <laughs> I, re- I remember enjoying Twelfth Night highly, not understanding a word that was being said. It was more visual to me. But how was it to read that language and to read that particular way? Uh, did it come easily to you? It did, and I... So I started going to see shows that were way too advanced for me when I was three. I saw Arsenic and Old Lace, which is not appropriate for children, but that's fine. And (laughs) we had, where I was growing up, actually free Shakespeare in the park. My mother always had a Girl Mm -hmm. Scout troop, so she was really big into any free theater she could find or cheap children's tickets to theater she could find so she could take this load of girls with her. So I would see Shakespeare every summer, and there was actually a – a Shakespeare theater that was about probably an hour and a half from where I grew up. And they had free tickets for kids on like the first Sunday of every month. And if you worked the system, right, you could see three Shakespeare plays in a day. Oh, awesome. And it was so cool because the first one you'd see would be like the, they weren't really interns or apprentices, but they were like the newer professional Shakespearean actors. 
And then the next show you'd see in the day would be like the hardcore, like I trained at the Globe Shakespearean actors. And then the <laughs> evening performance would have like 40 people in it and it would be everyone in the company and it was in the woods. So when there were fight scenes, like there were people an acre away from you fighting and people swinging from the trees. So it was super cool. So I was already familiar enough with the format that I could mm -hmm. understand what was happening. Oh, that's so cool. You you are you were ahead you were ahead of your time, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I my mom always had cadets and seniors for her Girl Scouts, so I was when I was three, I was going to the activities that were right for like the fifteen year olds. So wow. I was always sort of like doing whatever cultural activity had been chosen for them. That's pretty amazing. Well, I had, in terms of balancing this life, I mean, with COVID-19, obviously, it, 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 things are pretty much off for a lot of folks, especially those in the performing arts, um, before this, of course, and what will come after, hopefully. Your schedule, I mean, how do you balance a life with writing, and especially with theater? I mean, I sort of get the impression that you're on the, you were on the road an awful lot. I am. I no balance, to be honest. I travel a lot. Um, luckily, I've done. I've been on two different national tours. So, like, living on a bus, basically. I mean, you you technically get a hotel room every night, but really, you're living on a bus. I've done mm -hmm. that. So, I did two years on buses while working on being an author, and that was very difficult for lack of power outlets and Wi-Fi, especially. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as my normal schedule, where I'll go to a different state and I'll usually be there from anywhere from like 10 weeks to nine months for a contract doing shows. Mm -hmm. And so there really is just no downtime. I don't chill out. I, that's not a thing I do. So I will wake up and pack in writing before a matinee and get done with a matinee and have a snack and pack in writing before the evening show and then work on writing things till I can't see my computer screen anymore and pass out and do it again the next day. So it's not really a balance. That's something I should probably work on, but you know what? It hasn't killed me yet, so I guess it could be worse. Well, that kind of sounds like broadcasting. Uh Crazy just hours. Like only sleep when you really have to. Yeah, pretty much. Lots of hours, lots of traveling, sudden amounts of not doing anything, and then suddenly doing everything. So it's uh, it's not much different, and uh, I, I totally get it. And it's like, and for me, it was like when I used to drive the long distances um, between my workspace and my house, and it would be like I would be in my head writing the next or, you know, writing scenes for my current book or writing for the next book. And then it would be get home, and then it's like, okay, can I possibly write this down before I pass out? <laughs> and didn't yeah. always happen. didn't always happen, but the thing was I always thought was if I woke up and I still had that idea in my head, then it was meant to stick around. If not, then it really wasn't worth it. So it's probably rationalization, but it's it's – it's also kept me from pulling out the remaining of my hair, screaming, I can't remember that idea. <laughs> my favorite is when you leave yourself notes the night before of, like, this brilliant idea you had, and you wake up, and it's like, chocolate, gnome, murder. What? What was I talking about? That makes no sense. And you just stare at this note for, like, 20 minutes, and you're like, no, I have nothing. I have no idea what this means. 
Mm-hmm. And is it sort of like you just sort of have to brainstorm on it again or, or and it, it comes back to you or what? I mean, usually if it's that disjunct, it, I, I have no idea what I was talking about. Like, I, it's never going to come back. If I get, like, mm-hmm. full sentences in, if I was awake enough to do that, then usually I can figure it out. But if it's just, like, random disjunct words, I just sort of crumple up the paper and forget it ever happened because there's no way I'm getting that back. <laughs> um, I must ask, um, are, do you have any favorite shows or roles that you that come back around to you during your career? Is there like one role that just stuck stuck out for you? Um, I have a lot of shows that I really loved being in. Like I love Fiddler on the Roof so much, and I I've gotten to be Zidal in the show, and I've gotten to be Grandma Zidal in the show, and I love doing that show, and I would love doing it in any role. And those are sort of favorite shows for me are not based on, oh, and I got to do this part and everyone clapped for me. It's more, there are certain stories that I love telling and I don't really care what my part in that machine is. So like Fiddler on the Roof, I absolutely love. Drowsy Chaperone, I absolutely love. There's a certain version of Christmas Carol that I played a few different roles in that I absolutely love. So there are just some stories that I really enjoy telling. That is cool. Um, moving to um, your writing, what about the young adult world? What show? What did it choose you, or did you choose this world to write in and to write these uh, these inventive and fascinating stories about? Uh, I mean, for the tethering, I wasn't really trying to aim for a genre, and I just sort of got lucky that I landed in one. And Mm -hmm. it took me a while to figure out why I enjoyed writing in young adults so much. And a lot of it for me is there's a certain fascination in first times and in discovery. I love Mm -hmm. discovering things. I love giving the characters new experiences and bringing readers along for the ride. And there's so much of that that you can do with teenage characters. And there's also a certain level of freedom because if you write in middle grade, which is a very hard genre to write in and get into it, but, you know, Mm -hmm. kudos to anyone who wants to try. There are more firsts to be discovered because they're younger characters. However, you lose a lot of that autonomy. There are certain things that 12-year-olds cannot accomplish that 17-year-olds can. And at the same time, there are certain things that 17-year-olds can do that 23-year-olds can't because they have responsibility. Like if you look at something as basic as Harry Potter, okay, Harry's 11. He has nothing going for him. So of course he's going to go to wizarding school. Well, Mm -hmm. let's say Harry was 21. Harry has a job, an apartment, student loan debts, a pet. Like he can't just drop everything and go to Hogwarts anymore. He has to take care of this life that he's built. So YA is sort of the sweet spot of autonomy and first time without the need for who's going to pay my bills when I, while I'm gone, who's going to tell my boss I'm leaving and who's going to make sure that my responsibilities are managed. So it's a very cool, sweet spot to live in. That's cool. 
Well, let us discuss the tethering. And, you know, we're talking about Harry Potter, and this certainly reminds me an awful lot of it. Um, You know, we have such – and one of the things I've noticed from your work is there is a real craft that goes into the characters. And um, your leads, Jacob and Amelia, it's a world of magic trying to defend itself – it seems you drew quite a bit. Did you draw a bit from from Harry Potter, from J.K. Rowling? How did that work? No, it it wasn't really drawn from that. There's actually an entire genre of this magical discovery, and Harry Potter just so happens to like be the one who struck the biggest chord with people and made it the biggest. But there is like even if you look at something as simple as Narnia. It's the discovery of the magical world. It's the same with Percy Jackson. Oh, I hate my life. Wait, I'm magical. So there are a lot of books that go in that range. It's just Harry Potter is the easiest one for people to associate with because it is so popular and so blatant in its message. Like if you look at Narnia, you're like, oh, but they have each other. So magic's great. But if you look at Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling was just like, no, he's got nothing. Now he's magical. Like there were mm. no pretenses. There were no trying to hide what was happening. So it's very easy to see where she took the step from the normal world to the magical world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. Tell us about Jacob and Amelia. Tell us about these interesting people. Sure. So Amelia is, she was born a witch and raised in a magical environment. And she sort of, as a child, did not want to live her entire life in this bubble. And her guardian was kind enough to be like, you know what, let's show you a little bit of the normal world. Because in the Tethering series, magic is not completely isolated. It is hidden, but it is very much present in our world. So it was not a huge deal for them to say, you can go to school, you can meet normal people, let's give you a life. Mm -hmm. Jacob is a little boy who has basically no one. He is effectively an orphan, even though his father is alive. And so he is surviving on his own at way too early in age. And he and Amelia become very attached because he has no one else to attach to. It's just him. Mm -hmm. So she becomes very quickly his entire world. And then because of magical laws and witches and blah, 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 Amelia ends up having to leave Jacob behind. So he is once again abandoned. The story really begins a few years later when he discovers that he too is also a wizard and is given the option to join Amelia's world, knowing that it may very well kill him. And Mm. that's where the decision to join magic really begins the narrative of the story. Now, what's interesting for me was there was these varying levels in that magical world, the the elders and the different characters. How consciously did you build the the different levels because there seemed to be different ranks, there seemed to be different people with with more experience or different levels of it. How much how much craft did you put into that? Well, Quite a bit. Um, the the primary conflict outside of Jacob and Amelia's relationship 
is that a group is trying to take control of the magical world. They are trying to overthrow order and sort of out the magical community so that they can take control of the non-magical population. And if you're going to overthrow a government, you kind of have to know how the government works Mm -hmm. so you can know which players to remove, which players to protect, how you can chip away at those things. So there was a lot of like, okay, well, if you're going to overthrow somebody, who exactly are you going to overthrow? How hard is that going to be? How many people are going to be happy about that? So there, there was a lot of plotting work that went into creating a structure that I could try to destroy. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing, too, without giving it all away, is it seems like being that he is inexperienced, that Jacob may or may not be able to control his power. And that is something that I'm working with in my own time travel series. Um, I have a, I have a, a young person who is only vaguely aware of her ability but doesn't have any ability in using it and her one of her goals is to gain control of it um that seems to be what has happened with jacob is that he doesn't have a handle on this yet i think that's definitely true and for me it was an important thing to have jacob struggle with because it's the same struggle you sort of have with any autonomy or talent you discover when you're a teenager. You, you discover that you're suddenly really good at something, but you have no idea what that means, how that's going to affect your life. It's like being given keys to a car for, a first, for the first time. That's great. You have keys. You can make this machine go. How do you make it go without hitting anything? is a completely mm-hmm. different matter than being able to turn the key in the ignition. So that's why I didn't want to have him be like magically good at doing all these things, that there had to be a struggle and a learning process and the lack of vocabulary to express what he wanted to accomplish with magic so that he did have that learning curve that the readers could follow along with. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain, the, um, the and, uh, and it's like you, you have, a little of everything in this. You have, you know, you have your protagonist, you have elder, you have Aunt Is, you have elders, you have uh, rather evil characters. And it's like, it's part of the conflict, isn't it? Is It's like a good story doesn't exist without some of that. And also the struggles like, like, like Jacob is dealing with. Yeah, I, I love big tasks when I read and I like to create fleshed out supporting characters when I write too. And, most of my books, I'll say, it's not necessarily like the protagonist is obviously the biggest character. They're the one who has the most weight on them. They're the one who gets the most story time. But most often when I hear from readers, their favorite character is one of the secondary characters. That's who mm-hmm. they connected with is someone who is on the periphery. And so I try to be very careful about giving all the secondary characters that we really spend time with their own arc, their own goals, their own growth. Because if you're reading the Tethering series, you might not you might not see yourself in Jacob. You might not see yourself in yes. Amelia. But exactly. maybe you have this weird sense of humor that really fits Claire. So then mm-hmm. you're in it for Claire's journey. You're latched onto her. And so I try to give as many readers as I can the opportunity to say, Oh yeah, her her arc is what I relate to. 
or in my latest series, there's a secondary character that I get all kinds of emails about and everyone <laughs> loves him. They adore him. He's their favorite character and he's great. Like I love him. He has a journey. I worked really hard on putting together this complete human. He is not the protagonist. So I try to mm. give those opportunities wherever I can. And that's something that I, I found myself doing and I still do it to some to some extent when I'm reading or watching a film or anything like that. There's always a character that we are looking for that we recognize and we identify with them. And that's something I've I've tried to do is my cast, no one in my books, I hope, sits too much on the sidelines. It's like I like to, as you say, give them an arc. I like to give everybody a reason for being there. Um I just I remember a friend reading one of my early attempts uh, before I became published, and she noted that a certain character was just kind of there, and I thought, well, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. It did make me think, though, that, well, what do we do to bring her forward a little bit more? And I thought I had done that, but uh, it's the kind of thing it, it, it gets everyone in. When you get more people involved, you're going to get more readers involved, it seems. I think it's so true, and it's something that I've learned a lot in theater because, you know, there are times when you are the principal of the show, everything's all about you, and you just walk around telling your own story, and people, you know, kick their faces behind you, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of times when you're not, and when you are playing multiple characters in the same show, when you're living your life in the background, and it's so a little bit frustrating and makes me, you know, feel a little bit stupid, but the most compliments I get when I am performing on stage are for when I'm doing something weird and random in the background, not like distracting, <laughs> not, not participating, but I recently did a production of Saturday night fever. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think I was going to be in that show. I was like, there's no role for me in this. They were like, no, no, you're already here. Like be in the show. I was like, cool money. I love it. Give me a contract. Perfect. <laughs> so I ended up in the show, I was like some random person's mom. And then while all like the 22 year olds were dancing downstage, I danced with them sometimes. But when they were like doing their dialogue and dancing, I would be upstage. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm hanging out by myself, I want a martini glass. So for like mm -hmm. half hour of the show, I was by myself on a platform with this martini glass. And that is the most compliments I have ever gotten was for living my life upstage with a martini glass. And that's what I want secondary characters. I want to hand them a martini glass and be like, don't be distracting, but live your best life. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? That's what people need sometimes. They need that break in the drama that's going on downstage to see that person upstage with a martini glass. And I've done theater with that. And where we were doing, you know, you're, in, you're on stage, you're in the back. You can't just stand there. You can't just stare at them and listen you've got somebody standing next to you you're talking to you, you're maybe talking to someone you're discussing what's going on but nobody knows what you're talking about and you're not trying to steal the scene you're just kind of like well you know like that guy you know that kind of thing and we would and, and some of my fellow actors we would try to think well what should we talk about and each time we would just do it differently and it was kind of fun that way yeah it is it is fun and you you come up you find different kinds of actors like some actors are like no we're going to be talking about the scene. And some actors are like, did you book your tickets for Disney World for tomorrow? Are we still on? And some actors are like, <laughs> did you see that guy in the front row? He's totally sleeping. 
And sometimes <laughs> you have no one to talk to. You just have a martini glass, and sometimes your stage manager sneaks you snacks. Like, you know, that's just how it goes. And I was just about to ask, is like, was, some, was the bartender coming around and pouring you another? <laughs> no, I was by myself nursing this martini for so long. And I had, right. like, a, a little path I could exit through. So sometimes if it was like a two-show day or sometimes with the theater I was working for, we'll do four shows in two days. So it's a double-double, which is a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes like the stage manager would stand there with like a tiny cookie for me, literally rewarding oh. me like a small dog. So I could dance <laughs> off stage and like get my cookie and come back on and, you know, have my cookie to keep myself busy for a while. But no, I was, <laughs> I was alone with a martini glass for a really long time. Wow. Well, listen, back to the tethering here. Um, I am interested in the number of series, and it's like, how quickly did the tethering write itself? And is the, you know, how did it, how did it just roll in terms of getting the first one done? So after I wrote the book, it was probably, it was about a year and a half from when I started it to when I was like, okay, I can submit this. Mm-hmm. And I did not start writing this book in the series right away because I had heard so many stories of people submitting their first draft or submitting their first book, getting a publisher, and they've already worked on the rest of the series in the meantime. And if you do sign a publishing contract with a traditional publishing house, they have the right to change a lot about your story. They could change the way characters interact. They could say, no, they're not allowed to fall in love yet. So they can basically scrap everything you did for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. So I had it very much plotted out of like, this is where I want it to go. But I didn't actually start writing until I had the first contract. I got through my first set of content edits. And then I Mm -hmm. started writing the second book. And there was a lot of drama involved in publishing the tethering series it actually went through five different publishing contracts so it took me way longer than it normally would have to finish the series by the time i got around to writing book four in the series it probably took me about two months to write and two months to polish which is not a huge amount of time by any means but right. the break between writing for book one and writing book four was probably about four or five years just because mm. of all the pauses and holds where I had to wait for other things to happen in order to be able to continue. Mm-hmm. Now, are you out of that publishing? Because I see that, you know, it, 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 with all of these others, it seems like you're kind of your own business now. Um, it was December 2018 slash January 2019. Um, at the beginning of December, I had 14, 16 books under contract with two different publishers. By mm. the end of January 2019, so about two months later, I had severed ties with both publishers, one very amicably, um, the other not so amicably. But in both cases, the publishing houses, one sort of petered out, it was not financially viable, the other one imploded. And I had been with other presses that imploded before. And so when it started to happen and I was getting the first panicked emails from other authors at the publisher, I emailed my agent right away and I was like, I feel like this is happening again. I don't know what to do. And he was like, I think we pull your rights now before it gets worse. 
And I'm very lucky that that happened because I do know some public, some authors who are still fighting to get their work back from that publisher a year and a half later. Wow. Yeah. When a small press goes bad, it can go, it can go horribly bad. The FBI got involved once. Like it's, it can go real bad real quick. It's a dangerous business. Yeah. Well, those kind of things you have discussed make me feel much more fortunate that I have what I have right now. And uh, it's, um, it's it's a it's a scary business sometimes because I've heard these horror stories before and um, the battle for rights. I mean, there's the thing. It's like you're supposed to, in theory, have your rights, have your copyright, have your ISBN number for your book, kind of thing. And it doesn't always work that way. Is it is it is it a matter of mishandling the business on that end, or or what what do you think it is? I think it's a problem whenever you combine art and business because mm-hmm. a lot of small presses are founded by people who love books and think they can handle business. And mm-hmm. that's, that's really not viable. You have to be very, very confident in business. And so that's what happened with one of my presses. Lovely, lovely woman, loved books, amazing editor, really tried so hard, but the financial aspects were just never going to line up. And then on the other hand, one of the other presses was business people who were desperate to make money. And so they were just kind of screwing their authors over at every turn. And I've been Mm -hmm. very lucky in every case where I've had a publisher implode. I've been quick enough about asking for my rights back that I haven't really had a problem with the paperwork. Um, I did have a problem where one of my publishers kept selling my books for a year after I got my paperwork saying I had my rights back, but that's fine. Um, but it is it is super complicated, and it is more hurtful than just someone keeping some money from you that belongs to you, which that is totally wrong, and they shouldn't do it. And quite frankly, some of these people should be arrested for embezzlement, but that's fine. But it's also the fact that you've created this art and someone is taking it from you when you have Mm -hmm. the legal right as they break your contract to take it back, but you can't do anything with it. So it's this project Mm -hmm. that you've poured your heart and soul into. And, you know, a man with a rubber stamp is keeping you from touching it. And that is horrible experience. And I know a lot of authors who have sort of had their souls broken by it and they were very talented writers, but they are no longer writing or if they are writing, they're not seeking publication just because they had their heart broken so badly. They can't make themselves jump back into that situation. And that's where it becomes the question of really picking your spot and and doing some homework and that kind of thing about, do you want to work with this company? Do you want to work with, you know, do these people have a track record? Do they have some financial solidity, that sort of thing? And, you know, uh, it's, I, I remember the, the battle that an agent had trying to find um, a very early version of, of my book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, a home. And she couldn't find anything for like three or four years. And I want to say she did an honest job and I believe she did. But it was one of those things where, the only thing she could get me at the time was this almost like a vanity press. It was like, well, we'll do it, but you're going to have to pay us some things. And I was like, no, I don't think you will. And I just said, no, I'm not doing it. And so we ended the relationship. And in a way, it was the best thing because the book wasn't really ready. 
it, it was like my writing style had changed. Too many things had changed, and I made it way better. So blessing in disguise, I suppose. But um, that must really be so. you know, it, it, it's like how do you encourage someone to say, look, you can get back in the ring if you really want to do it. You know, it's the hard part, I guess. And, I mean, I would say besides doing your due diligence before you sign a contract, also keep your ear to the ground and make sure that you are in touch with other authors who are working with your press. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times, in my experience, the first sign that something is going bad is not necessarily that anything is wrong with your book, your paycheck, your publication. It'll be someone being like, I haven't heard from my editor in like three months. Mm -hmm. And then you'll hear from an editor, well, they didn't pay me. And then you'll hear from a cover artist, well, I'm not going to finish this in time because I haven't gotten my deposit. And so it's important to keep an ear to the ground once you're within a press, too, just to make sure that if anything starts to go south because, you know, the money dries up, the guy who was really keeping things on the ground is having medical issues and isn't there as much anymore, whatever it might be, to just always be listening for signs of trouble, which sounds horrible, but you, you do have to protect yourself in that way. And that's because sort of this, why yeah, I, yeah. I, I pulled all of my books and I have been independently publishing them. It was after a, a long talk with my agent, it was sort of to the point where I'm done trusting small presses. There is nothing they can do for me that I cannot accomplish for myself on my own timeline making more money. So that, that was sort of where that decision came from. And he still, my agent does still have manuscripts from me, but there is a very like firm line in the sand of who we will and will not submit to because I'm just not prepared to go through that process again. And if that means that I don't ever get another publishing contract and I do it all myself forever and ever, I would rather do that than deal with having to, pull my rights and do this and do that and fight people and go to small claims court. And like, no, I'm not never again. I'm done. And hopefully a lot of people have beautiful experiences, but I just can't put myself back in that situation. Understood. Well, without giving away your trade secrets, tell us about your business model and how you balance the editing, the writing, the promotion, all of that. How, how does that work? Um, so I am very lucky that I found right off the bat a very good cover artist, which does a lot of the promotion for me. Having a great cover makes your life so much easier. And a lot of the work that I've been able to do has come from connections that I did forge while I was traditionally published and from knowledge that I gained while I was traditionally published. So mm-hmm. The way that I work my business aspect, I publish wide. I am not exclusive with Amazon. A lot of that is I don't distrust Amazon. I distrust them looking out for their authors because one change in the Amazon algorithm can tank your income for the month as suddenly they're not favoring you anymore because of some, you know, weird twist that they've done to discoverability. So I do publish wide. I do have everything available in paperback. And I do sell a lot of paperbacks, which I know a lot of indie authors avoid. But it is worth it. It is worth paying the Ingram Spark fee or finding an Ingram Spark code so that you don't have to pay the fee. It is worth paying for your ISBN. Absolutely do it. 
it's not just about, you know, being able to do signed copies. I make a third of my income in paperback. So don't mm. ignore it. I was right. also very lucky in the fact that I had a huge backlist because of my time in traditional publishing. So I managed to get a lot of books out quickly. So I managed to connect with readers. Oh, that's cool. And I managed to keep them interested through my newsletter, through my social media. Yes, you should have a newsletter. I know it sounds weird because who would want to hear what you have to say twice a month? Like, you know, you're writing books. And today I killed six characters. I know it's hard. There's a great book called <laughs> Newsletter Ninja. Read it. Treat yourself like a superstar. Go out and have a newsletter because every other platform can be taken from you. Your newsletter list belongs to you. So no matter what Facebook does, you're still going to have something. Very cool. Now, uh, now we must bring in your partner, Christopher. He seems he because I, when I saw when I saw you at a book signing in Lancaster recently, and he, I mean, he certainly has taken he's probably taken a load off your back, but he's certainly been he's the extra pair of eyes, he's the extra pair of hands. It must be pretty cool. Oh, it is absolutely cool. He is actually um, very near me right now working on an Amazon ad for me. I recently uh, made him take over running my Amazon and Facebook ads for me because I just was pulling out my hair because I had time to make the ads but not time to monitor the ads, which is not a super effective way to do business. So he has taken over running the ads for me. He also um, edits my podcast. He runs my website. I write all the text for my newsletter, but he's actually the one who puts the mailing together. I wouldn't know how to log into my newsletter account. I think I know what server we use, but that's about it. Wow. And that's the cool thing is to have that kind of support, to have have a team, so to speak. Oh, yeah. I'm very fortunate that not only is he supportive, but he's also very tech-savvy. Because I I can't, no, no. And he, like, will make me ads in Photoshop and do all sorts of things that I would have to outsource, which you can. You can outsource your ads. You can outsource Photoshop. You can outsource basically every but the actual writing, which you could outsource if you wanted to get ghostwriters. But it's, mm-hmm. it's nice to sort of outsource that to someone who – I can look over their shoulder and see what's going on or be like, I know that this is probably not going to work, but could we try and have them actually say no to me? So that is very convenient. And we're actually going to start co-authoring soon on a project. So I'm very excited to get into that. Very cool. Now here's one thing. Um, I find that I have had in my experience, I have to choose very wisely about what conventions I go to, how do you choose events to go to, where to do book signings, that sort of thing? I, the problem with being an actor is that you never get to call out of work unless you're like mm-hmm. in the emergency room. So right. for me, it's can it fit in my schedule? So I've done very few in-person appearances and very few book signings just because most of the book fairs are on weekends. Well, I can't do that. I have three shows. Most yep. of the book signings they want to do on a Saturday afternoon. Well, that's great, but I have a matinee. Like, I, I can't. So right. for me, it's just sort of whoever is willing enough to work with my schedule. And I've really enjoyed 
getting to go to the few events that I have, and I would love to have the ability to do more. But where I meet most of my readers that I meet in person, a lot of the theaters that I work for sell my books in their gift shop, and someone will just send word backstage that someone wants to meet me, and I'm like, I don't know anyone who's here today, and I go out to the lobby, and they have my book in their hands, and I'm like, oh, well, this is a nice surprise. And, you know, that'll probably change in a mid-COVID world, but it was it was very cool while it lasted. That is cool. Um, also, uh, you have a podcast of your own. It's called A Book in a Dream. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. It's uh, it's a short-form, mostly solo episode podcast, and it's for people who are avid lovers of young adult books or are looking to start their own author's journey. So there are some episodes that have a little bit more information about like, not in, like this is how you run AMS ads, but like, hey, if this is where you're at in your journey, don't get discouraged. Hey, mm-hmm. if you are just now starting to plot out your book, here are some things that you should look for as an author and as a reader, have you noticed these things? And I do have some guest episodes where I have other young adult podcasters or authors come on but it's just, it's fun. It's quick. The interview episodes tend to be about 30 to 40 minutes long. The individual episodes are like five to 15 minutes long and all individual episodes are also available in blog form on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. So it's mostly a way for me to connect with my readers who already exist and to also connect with new readers who are looking for an author who they can not only enjoy reading their work, but can enjoy them as a person. And I find that with a lot of readers is that they, they're perfectly happy to read whatever book comes their way, but what they're really seeking is an, is an author that they can follow, that they can start a dialogue with, that they can have inside knowledge about so that they know more about the books than other people who read them. And that's how you begin to build super fans who will follow you for your whole career. And so it's been a great outlet for me to invite those people in and invite them to ask questions about the book, ask questions about the process. And so it's been a really great way to connect. All right. And where can we find Megan online, say your website or that kind of thing? Sure. You can find me online at MeganOrussell.com, and Russell has two S's and two L's. Uh, you can find A Book in a Dream, the podcast. There is a tab for that on my website. My books are on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, basically anywhere you can find an, an ebook, you can find me. You can order paperbacks on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, sometimes on Walmart too, which is cool and a little bit strange. And I am on Twitter, I am on Instagram, I am on Facebook, I am on TikTok, still figuring that one out, but hey, I'm on there, you can find me. So yeah, just (laughs) type in Megan O. Russell, make sure that there's an apostrophe between the O and the R, and you will find me all over the internet. All right. Well, Megan, it's, it's been great to talk to you. I hope to see you and Chris again sometime. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. Our guest has been Megan O. Russell, author of several young adult works, including The Girl of Glass and Tethering series. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of releases on Brown Posey Press, such as Searching for Roy Buchanan. The sequel to this series, Call It Love, is set for release later this year. Thank you for joining us. This is the Book Speak Network. 